Well, as we continue this morning with our study of this book of 1 Corinthians, I want to remind you of some of the things that we talked about last week. So what we said last week is that these people that Paul is writing this letter to, and he knows this, he's the guy that planted this church, are authentically Christian people. However, and here's the problem, it's the problem that Paul is addressing with them, and to the degree that it applies to us, it's the problem that he's addressing with us. They're authentically Christian people who are not living like authentically Christian people, and again, why is that a problem? Because authentically Christian people ought to live like authentically Christian people, which on a practical day-to-day basis means that my life and that yours ought to look different appreciably different than the lives of folks who don't believe in Christ. We have the Spirit of God. We've been made alive by Him. We have each other. We have His Word. It ought to make a difference, but it often doesn't. And so what Paul is doing in this letter with them, but not just with them, through them with us, is he's coming to them and us with some pretty obvious issues, and issue by issue by issue, issues upon which our lives really ought to look appreciably different than the lives of those who do not know Jesus, but don't. He's coming to us and going, hey, well, wait a minute, this is an issue. Your life should look different. It doesn't look different. Why does it not look different? Oh, wait, I know the answer, Paul says. It's because you're living according to a false theology. There's something that you don't know. Six times in this chapter six that we're still in, he comes to us and says, guys, do you not know? And then he tells us something that by faith should make us different. And today he's going to do that on the topic of sex and sexual immorality. He's going to come to us with an obvious issue and he's going to say, all right, listen, this, this is an issue that you should live differently on. Like everybody knows that you ought to live differently on it, but truthfully, we're not much different. So then why aren't we different? Oh, wait, Paul's going to say, I I know why, because you have a false theology of sex and a false theology of your physical body. So let me fix that. Do you not know? You see, do you not know? He will say, and he'll come to us and say, listen, let me correct that for you so that by the power of the Spirit in community with God's people, You can learn to live in greater and greater conformity with God's Word for the glory of Christ, whom you are to be more passionate for than anything else. So, with all of that in mind, we pick up our study today in 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 12, and here's what Paul does. Right out of the gate, he gives us three quotes from these Corinthians. So, he comes to us and says, let me give to you the Corinthians, and to everybody who reads my letter, that would be us, your false theology. Here's what you think. He quotes them, and then he undoes them, and he undoes us too. So he says this, beginning with a quote. Here's what they were saying. He says, all things, including sexual immorality, since that's our topic, are lawful for me. That's what they said, and yet here's what Paul says. He says, yeah, but not all things are helpful. Hang on to that word, and that includes sexual immorality, and in fact, very much includes it. All things, he quotes them again, are lawful for me, to which Paul says, well, maybe and maybe not, but I at least, Paul says, will not be dominated. I will not be enslaved by anything. And that's what this does. He's calling them to think differently. He quotes them again, third quote, he says, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. The implication being that these guys are going, hey, you know, sex is just like food and our physical appetites of our stomach is just like our physical appetites for sex. He's going, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. 
Yet Paul says, let me draw a distinction for you between your stomach and the appetites that you have from it in this life and your physical body. They have different destinies. He says, and yet on that final judgment day, that's what he's looking toward. He says, God will destroy both one and the other. That is to say food and your appetites of the stomach. But that's not true for your body. He says the body is different and it is not meant for sexual immorality. And I just want to pause here for a second and tell you what that word is. It's the word porneia. Does that sound familiar? From it we get the word pornography. But it's much bigger than just pornography. The biblical ethic that Paul is calling forth with this word, this is what it meant in his day. It's what it means now is sex of any kind, are you ready? Outside of marriage, which is defined. So this is the really crazy part, is it not? As one man and one woman. That is the biblical ethic for sex. And that is just non-comprehensible outside of the church and inside of it in large part. It's the stuff of crazy people. You're kidding with that, right? No? Let's keep going for a minute. He says, the body, your physical body, which has a different destination than the appetites of your stomach and is completely different from that, is different. It's not meant for sex outside of God's sexual ethic. But instead, he says, your body is meant for the Lord and and the Lord is meant for your body. And here's how we know that, because on the morning of the third day, Jesus Christ was the firstborn of many who will be raised from the dead on the last day. And by his life and by his sufferings and by his death and by his laying in the tomb and by his third day resurrection, he purchased a resurrection for us. And it belongs to him. That resurrection, we, his people, those bodies, that destiny. He says, look, your body is meant for the Lord, and the Lord is meant for your body. For God physically raised the Lord Jesus from the dead. And on the final day of his return, he's saying, God will also physically and bodily raise us up from the dead by his power. Okay, let's stop for a minute and like just rehearse a little of this, okay, because that's a lot. So what is their theology by which they're justifying living lives, sexually speaking, that looks just like the lives of everyone else in their city? Their theology goes like this. Okay, sex is like food, all right? And the appetites of our stomach for it are just like the appetites of our body for sex. It's the same kind of a deal. And so since in Christ Jesus, we're free to satisfy the appetites of our stomach by eating anything that we want. Can we not then also satisfy our sexual appetites in any way that we want? That's their logic. And Paul says, no, 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 we can't. And let me give you three reasons why. Reason number one, it's not helpful. Did you catch that? He's coming and he's saying, listen, the standard for Christian conduct is not based upon whether you can or cannot do something, whether you may or may not, as in this case, have the right to do something. It's based upon whether that something that you may or may not, in this case, have the right to do is helpful. Is it helpful to you? Is it helpful to the person you're married to? Is it helpful to your kids? Is it helpful to your parents? Is it helpful to the people you work with? Is it helpful to the people you go to school with? Is it helpful to the testimony of Jesus in this city and all around the world? Is it? Think it through. Because I think you'd have a tough time making the case that this is helpful. All right, if you haven't used your imagination for a while, I'd like you to kind of, you know, shock it. Okay, wake it up. 
Go find it back in the recesses of your mind to bring it out, blow it off, give it some smelling salts, because this is going to take a large capacity of imagination. But I want you to imagine with me that today, right now, we are living in a world in which for three generations of humanity, the whole of humanity said, listen, we're going to just jump in on this experiment. We don't necessarily agree with this. We think that it's crazy. You people are nuts. But to prove our point, we're going to go ahead and live according to God's ethic. What would be different? Because we're asking, what's helpful? So let me give you a list. It's not exhaustive. You can add to it yourself if you'd like. There would be no adultery. There would be no rape. There would be no incest. There would be no pedophilia. There would be no sexual abuse. There would be no kids who don't know their fathers, no unwed mothers, 99.99999. Just run the nines out. Percent of the 52 or 55 or so million abortions performed in America, not to say nothing of the hundreds of millions around the world, would never have happened. Pornography would not exist. Venereal disease would not exist. AIDS would not exist. Sexual addiction would not exist. And not only would we be, practically speaking, without those things, but practically speaking, we would be without all of the emotional, all of the spiritual, all of the economic, all of the social damage that all of those things inflict upon all of us. I think you can add to that a large share of marriage problems, and here's why, because sex is one of the three big problems in marriage. Sex, money, in-laws don't elbow anyone, okay? Don't do that. It's not going to go well for you. But it's one of the big three, is it not? Do you not want to know why it's one of the big three? In large part, it's one of the big three because we bring into it, each one of us as individuals, we bring into it a whole lot of baggage, sexually speaking, don't we? I mean, just be honest. Listen, here's what you can't do. You can't show up on the day of your marriage and like walk in the pastor's office 15 minutes before the ceremony and go, hey, here's what I need for you to do. I I need for you to delete a bunch of stuff off of my heart. I need for you to delete the images. I need for you to delete the feelings. I need for you to delete the memories. I need for you to delete the experiences. Like just wash it clean, delete all of that stuff so that I can stand up there and without any of that, begin this. God redeems, guys. God forgives. God undoes. He is the God who turns everything upside down and inside out. He does. So it's not a hopeless message. We'll get to that in a minute. But on a practical level, you just, you can't do that. So the Corinthians come and they say, all right, sex is just like food. It's just another appetite that we have. And I mean, since we can satisfy our appetites for food by eating anything we want, why can't we satisfy our appetites for sex by doing anything we want? And Paul says, well, reason number one, not helpful. Reason number two, because sex is actually not like food. It's not like eating a sandwich. It's not a bodily function. It's none of those things. It is different. And it's not a little different. Like it is massively, powerfully different. And here's why. Because God has made us, all of us, fully integrated composite beings. 
So here's what that means. I don't just have a body. I have a soul. I have a mind. I have emotions. I have a heart. So do you. And here's what we can't do. We can't divide ourselves up and say, well, I'm just going to take my body over here and then that will engage in my body, but I'm going to leave my heart over here and my mind over here and and everything else about me. No, it doesn't work that way. And so whether you intend to do this or not, whether you want to do this or not, whether you think that you're doing this or not, you're engaging the whole of you with somebody else. That's the idea. And that's why the Lord comes to us and He says, look, it's just for married people. Guys, there is a nakedness in sex that is far more than just physical. He's saying it's the covenant of marriage. People say, why should I get married? It's just a piece of paper. No, it's not. It's not. It is the covenant of marriage. It's that commitment that gives to me and to you the safety to truly be naked in every sense with another human being. And that is what opens the doorway to authentic love. Why? Because otherwise, you're hiding things and saying, well, but if she knew this, if he knew this, would they really love me? Do they? Man, in marriage, there's no hiding at some point. It's a big deal. It's the covenant of marriage that says, and with very few exceptions that says, and those few exceptions, incidentally, can be forgiven. They don't have to be seized. It says, listen, no matter what I see in you, no matter what I hear from you, no matter what I experience with you, I will love you. And I'm not going anywhere. That's not a piece of paper. It's not a little deal. It's a picture in many ways of the gospel of our covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, to the one who sees us wholly and fully. He sees things in us we don't even know about. And who nevertheless has espoused himself to us at the expense of the life of his own son, who comes and cleanses us fully and completely from our sin and presents us to the Father fully and amazingly and stunningly beautiful by His efforts, by His work, and by His grace. And so again, they come and they go, all right, look, so here's the deal. It's like food. We've got appetites for food. We can satisfy any way we want. Can't we satisfy this appetite any way that we want? And Paul's like, well, A, it's not helpful, and I don't think you can make a case that it is. B, no, it's not like food. And C, your body is not like the appetites of your stomach. Bad theology, he says. The appetites of your stomach are destined to end in the end, but your body? Oh, your body will be raised in the end. It is the temple, as he'll say in a second, of the Holy Spirit of the living God. It is the purchase of Christ by his life, suffering, death, burial, and resurrection. It is the gift of the Lord, and it belongs to him, and it's for the service of him. And so he continues in verse 15 where he says, and please don't miss the language because here's the do you not know language. He says, do you not know that your bodies are what? They're members of Christ. They're part of the body of Christ, which is his church. How is God at work in the world today? He's at work in the world today by his Holy Spirit through his church, through us as individual members of the church of God. By his Spirit, we are the body of Christ in the world. He's working in the world through us. Paul says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And then notice what he says. He says, shall I take the members of Christ 
and make them members of a prostitute, which incidentally was what these guys were doing and was perfectly acceptable in their city. Like nobody in her, their city was going, wait, that, that's, not, that's not a right thing to no, Everybody did that. It's at least as countercultural of an ethic then as it is for us today. But Paul's just dumbfounded. He said, like, shall I take the members of Christ then and, and make them members of a prostitute? To which, of course, he answers, never. But I want you to notice what his motivation is because it isn't fear. It's love of Jesus. Like Jesus doesn't come to us and say, listen, if you fear the consequences of disobeying my commandments, which I give to you to keep you safe from those consequences, then you will keep my commandments. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So Paul's not going, hey, I think you should keep these commandments because, you know, like you might get an STD, or I think you might, you should keep these commandments because somebody might get pregnant. I think you should keep these commandments because, good grief, have you seen the pictures of some of these issues? And good, he's not doing that. He's saying, you love the Lord. Well, then don't do that to him. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because it's instructive. Like, what do we need to cultivate in our own souls if indeed we're going to learn to die more and more into this sin and live more and more into righteousness in this area of our lives? Because it's not fear. What do we need to cultivate in the lives of our kids? I remember this as a kid. I went to a Christian school and all kinds of interesting chapel conversations about this, about as silent as this and almost as awkward. (laughs) Almost. Really? Pictures. Oh, this might happen to you. What's the problem with that? You're bulletproof. You're a kid, man. That's going to happen to somebody else. That's not going to happen to me. Now, that's a lie. Here's what we need to cultivate. Love for Jesus that says, you know what? I so love Christ. My passion for him is such that this is unthinkable to me. That's Paul's motivation and nothing else. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of the body of Christ? Shall I then take the members of the body of Christ who are joined to and united to Christ is the idea and make them members of a prostitute? Never, he says emphatically. And he continues, he says, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one in body with her? And he's speaking here quite literally. For as it is written about marriage, incidentally, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord spiritually becomes one spirit with him. Therefore, Paul says, walk casually away from sexual sin when you see it coming. He doesn't. It's too powerful to walk casually away from. He's like, listen, break and run, man, or it will overtake you. And almost everyone here knows that. Flee from sexual immorality. For every other sin, he says, that a person commits is outside of the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And you say, well, what in the world does that mean? Well, let me describe it practically. He's saying, listen, it's, it's, it's in a class by itself. It's different appreciably from pretty much everything else that we do. And, and I mean, those of us who have engaged in it, we know that, don't we? Like nine times out of ten when somebody comes to their pastor to talk to them, it's not about the fact that they smoked marijuana twice in high school. It's not. 
I'm against smoking marijuana in high school or thereafter, so don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm just saying that's not the stuff that, you know, 30 years later you're afflicted by. It's not. Never had anybody go, Tom, I got this DUI in college. Well, I'm sorry you got a DUI in college. Don't drive drunk. You could kill yourself and other people. It's a major expense. It's a big embarrassment. I get it. Okay, it's a problem. But nobody says that stuff. It is almost always this. I think 9 out of 10 is actually probably low. Which means that about 90% of the regret in this room, for all of us, just about, has to do with this topic. We look at the, the ethic of the Lord and we laugh at it. We just we dismiss it. We roll our eyes. We just go, oh, that's ridiculous. Like that's one of those ancient things. No, their city was more promiscuous than ours. In the ancient world, if somebody called you a Corinthian, they were not complimenting you. It was known for the kind of activities that inside and outside the church were happening. So again, Paul says, look, don't don't walk, but flee from sexual immorality. For every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And then he ties the whole case up with a great big bow by saying this. Again, he says, or do you not know, so there it is, that your body is a what? It's a temple. It's a dwelling place of God. It is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives, the idea being, within you, whom you have from God. Do you not know, therefore, he's saying, that you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Jesus died that he might own you. Therefore, he says, glorify God in your body in every way. In everything you do. I mean, like, what do you do that you don't use your body to do? Nothing. Glorify God with your body, including in this area of sexual purity. So there's his theological discourse by which he's coming to us and going, okay, here's the issue. Yeah, you don't look any different on the issue. I think you don't look different on the issue because your theology is bad. Here's the theology. Now go forth and by the power of the Spirit in community with one another, And in obedience to the word of the Lord, learn how to live less and less like everybody else and more and more in conformity with God's word on this issue. Learn how to do that. So now you know how to do that, but maybe what you're thinking now is, well, thanks a lot. You just drummed up a whole lot of stuff for me. (laughs) You know, what do I do with that? Because that's kind of the real issue, isn't it? I mean, we hear this and we go, okay, I know what to do going forward in some sense, but if I walk backward... I'm walking back into a bunch of stuff. What, what do I do with that? And the answer is you bring that to the Lord, all of it. You bring that to the one, and this has always been helpful to me, who hung naked on the cross. I think that says something, and publicly, that he might at the expense of his own life and humiliation do what? Forgive your sins, heal your wounds, redeem your regrets, and wash you clean. Cover over your shame that you might not need to be ashamed 
anymore. He takes our past and then uses it for a positive good as we surrender the whole of it to him. It's pretty amazing. And take comfort from the fact that one of the primary images of the church, of God's people in the Bible, is the image of the whore who is not just forgiven, but who's made pure. That's the power of the gospel. That's what Christ offers, offers to you in, frankly, probably the most private, the most sensitive, the most difficult alongside money. So it's always sex and money, right? So the most difficult topic to deal with, the one we don't want to walk back into because it's just so dark in there. There's light through the gospel for you. That's the point. So three questions. Number one, what do you need to bring to the Lord this morning? And I'm guessing that at this point you're not wondering. Like, you know, you just, you know the answer to that, don't you? Secondly, what do you need help and counsel for? Because there are some addictions and sexual addiction is an addiction. Yeah, you need somebody to walk with you. You need help with. And we can help with that. And then lastly, what are you going to do with it? Will you continue to be enslaved by the freedom that you've claimed over this area of your life, but that in fact enslaves you? Or will you walk into an ethic that looks like it's enslaving, but in fact will make you free? So figure that out. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that there is no area of our lives that, Lord, your word does not speak to and that your gospel does not cover. We thank you that there is no regret that you cannot redeem, that there is no wound that you yourself cannot heal, that there is no shame that cannot be taken away from us and undone, that there is no sin, Lord, that you do not forgive through faith in Christ. So bring us to the one who hung naked on the cross that we might be forgiven, redeemed, cleansed, and set free, and give us the faith that we need, Lord, to surrender this too to you, because we're to live different. And Lord, for your goodness, for your gospel, we need to live differently in this area. So fill our hearts with a love for the Savior who redeems us, that we might obey his word, that other people might see the light in the darkness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.